Dear loving Heavenly Father, as we come before you today, truly we pray that you will help us to take to heart the words of Jesus today. For these words are life-changing and they are truly powerful and they are meant to explode in our lives. And if we ignore them, we do it at our peril. And we just pray that you will help us to really concentrate and to see what Jesus says during this time. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, I'm going to uh, show a slide here. And I want to, uh, I'm not very good at science, so you're going to have to help me, right? Because I'm not sure what this means. Uh, if you see up here, what does this mean? Okay, uh, you can obviously say I'm a commerce graduate, right? So what does this mean? And nobody knows what this means. Huh? It's a theory of relativity. Okay, that's right. So this is a theory of, it's not, it's not a theory of relativity. Oh, somebody else is shaking their head. Okay, well, I think it's uh, E equals MC squared, and I think it's supposed to be very famous. I think it's uh, energy equals mass times acceleration squared, something like that, right? Now, who developed this, uh, this formula? Okay, Albert Einstein, right? Now, uh, the principal of my theological college made a very good point that actually E equals MC squared stands even if Albert Einstein didn't uh, uh, develop it or formulate it, isn't it? Because somebody else could have found out about it. Uh, it could have been uh, Newton, it could have been Archimedes. Andrew Ong could have discovered this formula and it would still be relevant, right? And I think he made the point that actually for many things in this world that we live in, it is the, the theory or the formula is irrelevant to actually who discovers it because it, it was there right from the very beginning. And he says that actually for religions, in many of the world's religions, it is the same thing. Like for Hinduism, we don't know who developed Hinduism and how it came about. We, we, we just don't have any idea where Hinduism came about. But it doesn't mean that people cannot practice Hinduism because Hinduism is a philosophy, is a religious system. Uh, in many ways, when my relatives tell me about Buddhism, it's very similar as well. Uh, you know, when you ask them about the founder of Buddhism, and they, it, it's not that important because what is important about Buddhism is not the founding of Buddhism, but the, the religious structure, the religious system that is developed around it. But the difference for Christianity, and we can see that in the book of Mark, and today we're going to do a review of Mark as well as look at Mark chapter 8, is that it is very, very, very concerned not about a religious system, but about a person, the person of Jesus. And in the first eight chapters of the book of Mark, it's all about this question, who is Jesus? Right? It doesn't tell us about some religious system. It's who is Jesus? That's what the question of Mark chapter 1 to 8 is about. And it's a very, very important question. It's more important than what job I take, who I marry, uh, uh, you know, what career I have, where I live. In the book of Mark, the question of who is Jesus is the most important question that you will ever answer or ever have to question in your whole life. And in Mark chapter 1 to 8, if you have a look up here, right, uh, is, is the first half, it's actually the book of Mark is broken up into really two halves. So the first half is about who, who is Jesus and the second half is what it means to be who he is and how we should respond to him. So the first half of uh, Mark, if you see up here, next slide, Okay, the first half really is all about, if you can remember last year, which you probably can't, because uh, a lot of people seem to have a uh, problem even remembering what we preached about the week before. Right? But last year, okay, when we look at Mark, you remember the first half of Mark was all about the miracles of Jesus. Do you remember it was very action-oriented? So, it was one miracle to another miracle. Jesus was healing people. Jesus was driving out demons. He was forgiving sins. He was walking in water. He was feeding thousands of people at different times. Okay, you remember that's 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 what Mark one to eight really contains. 
And also, Mark chapter 1 to 8, if you look at the next slide, uh, the word authority keeps being repeated over and over again. Uh, especially in Mark chapter 1 and 2, right? It says that people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority and not as the teachers of the law. And in Mark chapter 1 again, in verse 27, the people also amazed and they asked each other, what is this, a new teaching with authority? He even gives orders to evil spirits and they obey him. And news about him spread quickly through, or sorry, over the whole region of Galilee. And in Mark chapter 2, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. So here in the first half of the book of Mark, it really shows the identity of Jesus, his authority, his authority over nature, his authority over the evil spirits, his authority in teaching, his authority to forgive sins. But up until chapter 8, verse 29, no one has actually said the words of who Jesus really is. People have guessed various things about who Jesus is. But today in this passage that we're looking at, chapter 8, verse 27 to 28, it is the key marker or key turning point in the book of Mark. Because for the very first time, it answers the question that's been posed right from the very first verses of chapter, uh, of, uh, chapter 1, who is Jesus? And what does chapter 8, verse 27 to 30 say? Well, turn to me in your Bibles. Chapter 8, verse 27 says this. And uh, you need to keep your Bibles open because the words are very important. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, Who do people say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you? he asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, You are the Christ. And Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Now, as we look at this passage, we must not underestimate what the average person on the street is saying about Jesus. Uh, they were very, very impressed with Jesus. They, they were super impressed with Jesus. They thought Jesus was really great. And we can see that because when they were asked the question, or when Peter was, the disciples were asked the question, what, the, what are people in the crowd saying about me? Uh, they said, you know, John the Baptist, some say Elijah, others, one of the prophets. And what it meant was the people on the street viewed Jesus so highly that they compared him with, with, with people who were dead. Right? Because in, in, John chapter, sorry, in Mark chapter 6, John the Baptist was already dead. So they were saying, well, Jesus is such a great person that he is like John the Baptist come back from the dead. That's what the man on the street was saying. But not only that, they were saying, look, he's like Elijah. Elijah was this long dead prophet who was supposed to come back before the end times. And Jesus is like this prophet Elijah before the end times come back. Some other people said he was like a prophet long ago. So in the eyes of the people in the crowd, they were already comparing Jesus to the very highest category that they could think of in their own minds. But Jesus is not satisfied with these really high categories and he goes on to say to Peter, what about you? Who do you say I am? Because Jesus realizes that these categories are not high enough. That Jesus is even higher than these categories. So who is Jesus? Peter gets the jackpot, right? He gets the million dollar prize. He says, you are the Christ. Now, Peter is not giving Jesus a new name, right? 
as in Andrew Ong, Jesus Christ. The Christ is a title. It's a a title for someone that the Jews have been waiting centuries for who would bring all the people back together again into Israel, who would get rid of all the foreign enemies, who would rule the world forever and ever as God's king. So who is Jesus? He's the Christ. Well, maybe we can end Mark's Gospel in chapter 8 because we have the answer, right? Who is Jesus? He is the Christ. So why do we need Mark chapter 8 all the way to chapter 16? Because the problem is the confession of Christ is not enough. The disciples and people don't understand what the Christ really means. Right? Because Jesus in verse 30 Look what it says in verse 30. He warns them. He turns to them and warns them. And the word warn here is a very strong word. He looks them in the eye and says, Don't tell anyone that I am the Christ. Now, that's a very strange thing to do. Don't you think? I mean, here, Peter has finally got the secret of Jesus' identity. Who is Jesus? And Peter then tells, sorry, Jesus then tells Peter, Don't tell anybody about it. I mean, you think that he would say, Oh, you can put it in your Facebook. Alright, maybe put it on Twitter or put it in the Straits Times forum page, you know, I met Jesus. So why does Jesus say to Peter, don't tell anybody that I am Christ? Well, I think the key comes in verse 31, isn't it? The key is in verse 31 and 32. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law and he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now the word plainly here means, uh, according to this commentator, which I agree with uh, Lane, it's, it is an outspokenness of Jesus which, which conceals nothing. Up until this point, if you look at Mark chapter 1-8, to Jesus often talks in parables. And parables were sort of, you know, a bit a bit hazy, right? It can reveal the truth, but for some people it can hide the truth. But here it says in verse 32, he spoke plainly about this. And what Jesus wanted to really get through was that the meaning of Christ was for a Christ which was a suffering Christ, a rejected Christ, a dying Christ, and a rising again Christ. And I want you to look at these words very carefully, right? He says he must the Christ must suffer many things and be rejected by the chief priests and teachers of the law and he must be killed and after three days rise again. That means that Jesus doesn't say that he would most likely die, that he would possibly die or in all probability die. He said he must die. It is a divine necessity, it is a divine destiny of Jesus that he must die because he was fulfilling God's plan for the Christ. Now this is really important, right? Because this divine necessity and divine destiny was because Jesus as Christ was fulfilling something really important. And here it fulfills Isaiah chapter 53, right? And I want you to look up here because this is a very, very important verse. Because by having this verse, we understand why Jesus has to suffer, has to be rejected and has to die. And it fulfills Isaiah 53. It says, Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God and smitten by him and afflicted. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. 
by his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear the iniquities. Now, if you look up here, thousands of years ago, the prophet Isaiah already saw the necessity of the Christ suffering, being rejected and dying. It says here that he will take up our infirmities and carry our sorrows. He will be stricken by God. He will suffer. But not only that, if you look at the, the green section, right? if you can tell the difference between the colors, in the green section, it actually shows that it predicts that Jesus will live again. The Christ will live again. And why does the Christ die and live again? Because he will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. That means he will carry their sins. See, the picture of the Christ that Jesus has is one of suffering and of dying and rising again so that he will take the sins of people. Now, I agree with this preacher called Dick Lucas who says that actually verse 31 is more important than everything that we've learned about Jesus in the first eight chapters of Mark. And I think it's true, I agree with that. Verse 31 tells us more important things about Jesus than, than, than conceivably Mark chapter 1 to 7. Because Jesus making miracles is never going to save us. Jesus walking in water is not going to save us. Jesus feeding 5,000 is also not going to save us from our sins. Jesus and his teachings are not going to save us from judgment. But who is Jesus? What is the Christ? He is the Christ who comes to die for the sins of people and rise again. Now the problem with Peter was that since he was raised up as a young boy, what was Peter's understanding of the Christ, the Messiah, the King? His picture of the Christ was of a glorious King, isn't it? A glorious Christ, a majestic Christ, a ruling Christ. And therefore, we can understand now that Jesus is talking plainly about what it means to be the Christ, that he didn't accept it. He, didn't un- he couldn't understand why Jesus was talking like this. He, understand why, he understood what Jesus was talking about. He couldn't understand why Jesus was talking like that. Because that was not his picture of Jesus Christ. So he says to Jesus, right? Uh, he spoke, to Jesus took, Peter took him aside in verse 32 and began to rebuke him. Now the word here, rebuke, is a very powerful word. It's like slapping Jesus in the face. Okay, Jesus, if you look up here on this slide, Jesus rebukes the demons and the evil spirits. Right, so Peter here is actually rebuking Jesus. He's actually saying to Jesus, look, Jesus, get with the program, right? You've got it wrong. You know, you, we've seen you walk on water. We've seen you feed thousands of people with just five loaves and two fish. We've seen you heal people. What do you mean that you're going to suffer and then be rejected and then die? You know, this is, this is all wrong. You've, you've, you're reading from the wrong, the wrong manuscript. And here, Jesus then tells Peter, in verse 33, he looked at Peter, actually he looked at the disciples, right? Because now the disciples are all listening to what Jesus is going to say. And he rebuked Peter. So Peter rebuked Jesus, and Jesus then turns around and rebukes Peter in front of everybody. And he says, get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. And I think that this is a very, very deep and profound thing for us, and I want us to really pay attention to this, because 
Peter goes from hero to zero. And Jesus says a very, very, very profound thing to him. He says, get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. Now, how can Satan be in Peter if Peter says that Jesus is the Christ? How can Satan be in Peter if Peter has just acknowledged that Jesus is the Christ? Well, the answer here is that he does not have the things of God, but the things of men, isn't it? The things of men. And I think that the, what this lesson is actually telling us is to be a follower of Jesus, we must accept Christ's teaching about Christ. Right, this, uh, I, I borrowed this phrase from, again, this guy called Dick Lucas. He said, we must accept Christ's teaching about Christ. See, the temptation of Peter is a temptation that we have. We do not want to accept Christ's teaching about himself, about Christ. We want to make Christ out to be the sort of Christ we want him to be. But Jesus says that when we look at him, Jesus as Christ, not in the way that he is supposed to be, not in the way that he teaches, but in the way that we want him to be, we are actually looking at him from a satanic point of view, from a worldly point of view. And I think that's really shocking because when you think of what Jesus is saying here, there are many people in the world, probably people that you know, people that I know, they are actually looking at Jesus from a satanic point of view because they are not accepting Jesus Christ taught by Jesus Christ, but they are making up this picture of Jesus Christ that they want Him to be. So many people today look at Jesus Christ as some person who is very successful, who is going to bless you, who is very, very admired by society, and therefore that is the Christ I'm following. Not the Christ that is pictured here by Jesus' own words, a suffering, humiliated, dying Christ on the cross. So I remember uh, going to uh, listen to uh, uh, this pastor talk in the church, and his sermon was about how Jesus was a rich Christ. Right? Jesus wore an expensive undergarment, underpants, and therefore Jesus was very rich, when we follow this rich Christ, we will become very rich ourselves. I'm afraid that that's a satanic point of view. It is looking at Christ from a worldly point of view, not the way that Christ teaches about himself. There are other people, uh, I'm sure that we all know who I'm talking about, who see Jesus as someone who will be very comfortable in Hollywood or in, on Wall Street. You know, Jesus is this very hip, uh, contemporary character, who the world loves. But that is not the Christ that Jesus teaches about. Because the Christ that Jesus teaches about is rejected by the world. It is, it is humiliated by the world. So what is the Christ that you are following? Is it a Christ that is taught by Jesus Christ? Or is it a Christ that the world wants, that is a figment of somebody else's imagination or even your own desires? Because then Jesus will say that you are actually looking at him from a satanic point of view. And now, Jesus turns to the crowd and look what he says in verse 33 and 34, right? Sorry, verse 34. Then he called the crowd to him. Notice it's not just the disciples, it's the whole crowd to him, along with his disciples and said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now these are very powerful words because 
he's not just talking to the disciples, he's talking to the crowd. And it's an invitation that if you want to follow Jesus, this is what I require. This is the bottom line. Uh, he doesn't mince any words, it's not fine print. Okay? This is what you need to do if you want to call yourself a Christian. So here we see that it's actually a parallel. right? He says, you want to come after me, you want to follow me. Both are words where you show someone, you know, following someone or being a disciple or a, or, or a follower of someone. And he says, if you want to follow me, you want to be my, come after me, you want to be my disciple. Correct? Well, you must deny yourself. And how much do you need to deny yourself? You need to take up your cross. Now, what does it mean to take up your cross? It doesn't mean that you have an ingrown toenail. Okay, it doesn't mean that you have a bad back. It doesn't mean that you know you have a, a bad daughter-in-law or mother-in-law. Those things are not carrying the cross. That is just life. Carrying the cross means giving up everything for Jesus. Jesus says, you want to follow me? You give up everything. Because as the picture shows, in the olden days, when you see someone carrying the cross, they are going to their execution, they are going to their death. Jesus is saying, if you want to follow me, deny yourself and go to Changi and put a noose around your neck. Oh, actually, Changi prison is closed now. Go to somewhere else and put a noose around your neck. That's what he's saying. You want to come after me? You deny yourself how much? You go and sit in the electric chair. You want to come after me? You want to follow me? How much does it cost? You go to the gas chamber. That is what Jesus is saying. And Jesus is saying that if you want to follow him, those are the requirements of discipleship. He is saying that if you want to call yourself a Christian, you must give up everything for me. He doesn't say, I want to point out this word, right? The word must. See that word must there? I didn't highlight it because there are too many colors already, okay? But you see the word must there? He doesn't say, if you want to follow me, come after me, it is strongly encouraged huh, that you deny yourself. He doesn't say, it is highly recommended that you uh, deny yourself. Or perhaps, you know, I would really like it if you deny yourself. He says, you must, you must deny yourself and take up your cross. See, I'm not going to be like uh, some other people I remember going to this church growth talk, right? And he said, oh, you know, get people into church. Okay, you have this big rock concert and then you give this really good talk about how you promise people, you know, eternal life and all the blessings and get rich and everything else. And then, you know, once they come to church, you know what you do? You give them lots of things to do, right? Get them served and different things. And then when they come in, you, you show them the fine print. Okay, Jesus doesn't do that. He says it right up front. You want to follow me? You give me everything. Now, you might be sort of thinking, as I'm sure the crowd were, wow, this is a lot. I mean, I give my whole life, what else is there for me? Nothing, right? It's all gone. I give it all to Jesus. But then he says, in verse 35 to 37, why this makes perfect sense. Why it makes perfect sense to give your whole life to Jesus. He says in verse 35, for, the word for here is because, right? Uh, because, because whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? Now, I want you to look at the first section. 
Jesus actually, uh, I think Jesus would be a very good accountant here, right? Because he's like, this whole two ver- three verses is actually a, a T diagram, right? Profit and loss, credit and debit, okay? And what he's saying in the first section is, let's see what, what, what profit or what gain you get by following me. And he says, okay, then, then you sort of say, whoever wants to save his life will lose it. And you think, I can't understand that, right? If I lose my life, how can I save it? I mean, after all, if I'm dead, I'm dead. How can I save my life if I'm dead? But what Jesus is doing, he's making a play on the word life. Because life can mean earthly life. Life can mean eternal life. You get what I'm saying? You see what I've highlighted for you? Right? Highlighting is very good. Okay? Now, you see, he says, if you want to save your earthly life, you will lose eternal life. But, if you choose to lose your earthly life for me, that's to take up your cross for me and for the gospel, right? go to the gas chamber, die for me, you will save your eternal life. Now, when you think of it that way, then it makes a lot of sense. It makes absolute sense that we should give up our life for Jesus. Because who is Jesus? Jesus is the one who not only dies, and is rejected, but he rises again, and he comes back to give people eternal life. The, the person of Jesus, if we believe that Jesus is God and comes back and gives eternal life, then isn't 90 years of this life worth giving up compared to 100 million gazillion, zillion, zillion years? Yes, isn't it? It is worth giving up. Because our earthly life is short compared to what? eternal life will be like. And that's what Jesus is saying. You know, it makes so much more sense to give up, to take up your cross now and to have eternal life. And then he goes on to say, he uses another two illustrations. He says, What good can it, is it for a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? Now, if you look in the Bible, verse 36, the word soul here is the Greek word psyche, right? And it literally means, okay, if you see here, it's the same word soul, it literally means uh, the understanding where when your earthly body is gone, there is your identity which is left. There is something which is left. Your soul which is left. And Jesus says, what good is it if you gain the whole world but lose this thing that lasts for eternity? So let me, um, let, let, let me, let me, let me uh, look at it another way. Like, let's say you gain the whole world, right? Let's say you are you make Bill Gates look like a poor man. Okay? In fact, you own Bill Gates. You own Steve Jobs. You own all the rich people in the world. But yet, you do not have eternal life. What good is it? What profit is it to you? And obviously, Jesus is saying that there is no profit. You could have the whole world. But if you do not have a soul that lives eternally, there is no exchange. So let's say I come here and I want to do a business deal with you. And I say to you, today I'm here to buy something. I'm here looking for souls. Okay? Anybody have a soul to sell? I'm willing to sell you a bungalow in uh, Sentosa for your soul. Would you be willing to sell me your soul? Right? No takers. Huh? Okay. Let's say, I say to you, look... Maybe, maybe bungalow in Sentosa is not your deal. I'm willing to give you a Ferrari, a red Ferrari. 
Brand new red Ferrari, but you might not drive it very fast in Singapore. But a red Ferrari, right? For your soul. Would you be willing to give it up? Your eternal soul for a red Ferrari, would you? Or maybe I'll give you something more tangible. Like. I can only think about this from a guy's point of view. I don't know how it works for a woman, right? Let's say I'll give you a supermodel girlfriend. Would you be willing to give up your eternal soul for a supermodel wife or girlfriend? I don't know what to give a guy, uh, what women look for, right? Would you be willing to give it up? Would it be a good deal, a good commercial transaction for you? And Jesus is saying no, isn't it? It would not be a good, a good commercial transaction for you. But yet, every day, people are making that bad deal, isn't it? They're willing to give up their soul for the world. Then Jesus goes on to say, right, he says, um, what can a man give in exchange for his soul? And the answer is nothing. There is nothing that a man can give in exchange for eternal life. There is nothing worth it. Now, in verse 38, he, uh, he then ends his last challenge. And he says, If anyone is ashamed of me, and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with his holy angels. Now, I want to tell you that all of us will be tempted to be ashamed of Jesus. I have been ashamed of Jesus. I've been ashamed of Jesus with family members and I've been ashamed of Jesus in front of complete strangers, even the waiter. When the waiter asks me, what job do you do? There are times where I feel, ah, what should I tell him? Uh, pastor? Uh, maybe not. Uh. All of us have a temptation to be ashamed of Jesus at some point in time. And I think that there are many ways that people escape uh, this shame, being ashamed of Jesus. But Jesus is not fooled when we try to escape. Now, I just want to make two observations which I really feel uh, is so important to pay attention to what Jesus says. right? And that's why we need to pay attention to what the Bible says. Because I've read this passage so many times, but even looking at it again, it brings new meaning to me. And I want you to look at what the verse says in verse 37. It says, If anyone is ashamed of me and my words... That's what the Bible says. It doesn't say, if anyone is ashamed of me alone, it says, ashamed of me and my words. If you are ashamed of the words of Jesus, it is as good as being ashamed of Jesus. You, you know what I'm saying? Many people say, yeah, I'm a Christian, but you know, uh, I think that uh, homosexuality is okay. I'm a Christian, but I think that, you know, uh, what he says about various things, that, that's, that's alright. You know, I, I mean, Jesus said that, but well, you know, we live in a different world now, right? But Jesus says, if you are ashamed of his words, it is as good as being ashamed of him. Now, I remember uh, when uh, I was uh, in uh, working as a Bible, I mean, not Bible study leader, but I was working in Hewlett Packard. I was a, a Bible, I just ran a Bible study group like, for Christians in, in, when I was working there. And I remember there were many Christians, you know, very happy to call themselves Christians. But then when it comes to the words of Jesus, they don't want to make a stand for the words of Jesus. So you see another Christian brother flirting and uh, making very sexual, uh, suggestive remarks to other people. Uh, that's okay. You know, you see uh, Christians, so these so-called Christians, uh, distributing emails with very uh, sexual content. That's okay. Happy to call themselves Christians, but what does it mean to be a Christian? 
they don't listen to Jesus' words. So, even in the book of Mark, right, you look up here, even in the book of Mark, look at what Jesus says. How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Uh, If anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell. Now, these are not very popular things at all, isn't it? Uh, Very easy to say, I'm a Christian, wear a cross, but then for you to go into the office or your student workplace and to say, Jesus said this and I'm willing to stand with Jesus, well, that's tough, isn't it? That's really tough. But it's very clear. You cannot separate the man, Jesus. You cannot separate Christ from his words. You want to say you're Christian? You want to stand with Jesus? You stand with his teachings and his words. That's just life. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means to follow Jesus and to come after him. The second thing I want you to notice, it says there, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, what does it mean that we live in an adulterous and sinful generation? The word adulterous here literally means that we worship other gods, that we are not faithful to the one God. That's what this generation is like. It worships other things apart from God. Maybe money, success, fame. Okay? And it, lists, and it says we live in a sinful generation. Uh, I mean, it, it, it's, it's willing to tolerate wickedness or evil or corruption. And the problem that I feel today is that we, we don't recognize what sort of world we live in. That we live in a wicked and adulterous generation. And I know that there are some churches, and I've met many Christians, who actually say this, you know, if you become a Christian, you will beat the world at its own game. You become richer than the world. You become smarter than the world. You become more successful than the world. You become more hip and even more, you know, popular than the world. That's what some Christians believe. And some Christians actually believe that that is a means of evangelism. The richer you are, the more successful you are, the better clothes you are, I mean, kind of, sorry, the better clothes you have, right? Then, that is a great testimony of how great um, Christianity is. So, you know, if we can be cooler than the world, we can be more entertaining, we can beat them in the stakes of Hollywood and Wall Street, that will show to the world just how great Christianity is and everybody will become a Christian. But if we really understand the words of Jesus and what it says about the world, then we recognize that actually the world is wicked. The world is adulterous. And the more you become like the world and try to beat the world at its own game and being hipper and cooler and dress like the world and be successful like the world and be funny like the world, you are actually becoming as wicked and as adulterous as the world is. And I think that uh, if you are really honest and you look at some Christians who are in media, some Christians who are in the world, who really believe in this sort of thing, and you actually say that they have actually become adulterous just like the world. Their God is not the God of Jesus. Their God is not the God of the Bible, but their God is money or, or success or popularity. And they've compromised all their values so that they've become like the world. They look like the world. If you look at them, they don't even look Christian at all in the way that they talk or the way that they behave or the way that they dress. But Jesus says that you can't eat your cake and eat it. 
you are either standing with Jesus and you are ashamed of the world or you are not standing with Jesus right? and the world and you are ashamed of Jesus. So which one are you? Because the word here, ashamed, literally is not like, you know, shame, shame, right? You know, like, oh, you know. But literally is, are you willing to stand with Jesus? Will you acknowledge Him? Will you throw in your lot with Him? And say, I will follow Jesus. So I want to tell you a true story that my, uh, one of my relatives told me, and I believe this to be very, very true. And I've changed all the details so this all be mixed up and you don't know who it is I'm talking about, and what I'm talking about all. But it's a true story. This person was a senior executive of an organization. And this organization wanted to take a certain direction. And this person was a Christian. So in the meetings, he said, look, I, I really don't think this is right. As a Christian, in my conscience, we cannot do this as an organization. This is wrong. It's against my religious beliefs. It's against my conscience. So, okay. You know, it's written in the minutes. And then, uh, this goes on for a little while. They discuss about this direction of the company. A few, minutes, uh, a few meetings later, the chairman of the board comes and sits into the meeting. And uh, the meeting is going on. And then the chairman of the board speaks to this Christian man who is a senior executive and says to this man, I understand that you're not in support of this new initiative that we want to go on. And the man says, yeah, you know, I feel strongly about it as a Christian. On the grounds of conscience, we, I don't think that this is the way that our, our organization should go. So the chairman of the board uh, says to this Christian man, well, we've decided to go this direction. And, uh, you know, we suggest that if you feel so strongly about this, then you should resign. And then the Christian man said, uh, well, uh, let me think about it. Uh, <laughs> uh, okay, well, well, okay, no need, no need to say any more. Okay? And, he, and he stayed behind. Now, what would you do in that situation? Because for you, you said you're a Christian. This is what I believe in. This is wrong. And you said, well, should you stay your cause and not be ashamed of Jesus and throw in your lot and Jesus say, well, this is my stand. Yes, I will resign because I believe that this is wrong and I will not be part of this decision. Well, what's the right decision? What does Jesus say? What good does it gain you if you gain the whole world and lose your soul? If you are ashamed of Jesus and will not stand with Him and His words in this life, then what good is it even if you kept that position, you got the bonus, you got the pay, you got the status, but when Jesus comes again, because we know who He is, He's going to come again. He rose from the dead. If He comes again, and when He comes again, what do you gain? You've lost. You've lost. You've lost eternal life. You've lost your soul. So Jesus is very clear. He says, you, this is the understanding of Christ. He is God. He comes again. He rises from the dead. He is also rejected by this world. If we follow this Christ, we too will suffer rejection. But we must persevere. We must persevere to the point of death. Because it makes the most sense. Because what good is it if you gain all these things in this world, but you lose eternal life when Jesus comes again? In conclusion, uh, about two weeks ago, the, the, the publisher of our children's church material uh, gave us a talk. We met out him. He's a wonderful man. His name is Rory. 
he's from South Africa, and we use all the children's church material. And he gave this talk. And there's one illustration that I remember. He said that if we believe that Jesus is going to come again, then everything we have now is firewood. Right? Everything is firewood. Because it's all going to be burned up. That's what it says in the Bible. In the last day, everything is burned up. So he says, you know, whether you have a Giordano clothes, or whether you're Prada, it's just more expensive firewood, isn't it? Right? Whether you have a Ferrari, or whether you have, you know, a very cheap, uh, what's the cheapest car? Cherry or something, right? It's still a fire. You know, it's, it's all going to be burned up. It's whether you have cheaper firewood or more expensive firewood. And his challenge, and I think it's a challenge of what Jesus is saying here, is what do you value if it's all going to be burned up? If it's all going to be burned up, then what really counts is eternal life. If you really believe Jesus is the Christ, then it requires sacrifice, even to the point of death. And even to the point of death, it is still much, much, much more logical to give up everything for Jesus. Because when He comes again, you get everything. You get eternal life. You have your soul. So let's make the right decision. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear loving and heavenly Father, as we come before you today, help us to see from your word, from the words of your Son, from the mouth of Jesus himself, that the Christ is not the Christ of this world, what we want him to be, a God who gives us material prosperity and uh, happiness and acceptance in life and uh, success and everything. But actually, if we follow Jesus and his words, we will expect what the world gave him, which is rejection, suffering, humiliation. Because we stand against a world which is wicked and adulterous. But help us to see that it is actually the wise thing to do, that the loser will actually keep his life. That as we walk in this world, we must be willing to live for the world to come. Help us, dear Father, to see clearly and to see that no house, no car, no relationship, nothing, no job is worth our allegiance and our standing with Jesus and His words. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.